Good morning, everybody. It is so good to be back with you. Thank you for all the people who I've not had a chance yet to thank for the prayers for my family and the passing of my grandfather back in North Carolina. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for all the prayers for Jessica. Um, if you haven't seen, we have a Jessica sighting um, today. She is feeling better. Uh, she still needs prayer. She is still in the recovery process, but it is great to, to have her able to get out and about. Um, and so thank you for all your prayers there. Um, and I do want to say there were, there's been a lot of distractions in the Ma- uh, Massey household <laughs> for the last few weeks. Um, and even this week, um, while I was preparing for the sermon, there were a lot. And I was not able to get a printout with notes um, printed for you physically, but they are going to be on the screen. So if you have a pen and you can find some blank space in your bulletin or you have a notebook, there will be notes, um, things for you to take down. So I'm sorry there won't be a printout, um, but you get me. And so... Here we are. Now, speaking of which, I know it is Mother's Day, and just so I can say as well, Happy Mother's Day. Thank you to all of the women who have played that role in some way, shape, or form in the lives of people here. Um, You are truly a blessing to all of us um, in exemplifying what God's love looks like. Um, But for some reason, Alex made a sermon on repentance on Mother's Day. Um, So he, uh, Alex makes the preaching calendar way um, way back in the past, so in a mix of God's providence and Alex's choice, um, you can take what that is, means that we're preaching on repentance on Mother's Day. But um, here we are, and I'm really excited to go through this passage together because, yes, it is a passage about repentance, but this is a passage that, look, like uh, he said before, going through these minor prophets, I went to Bible college, okay? I didn't know a lot of what I was studying in this passage. That happens a lot, doesn't it, Alex? It's a really fun part about being a preacher. We don't get up here to show off our knowledge. We get up here to tell you all the things we got excited about learning ourselves, <laughs> right? And so there's a lot of things that I learned in this, and I'm excited to share with you through the book of Joel. Now, we have one sermon through it, and we're going to go through or talk about the themes of the entire book, so buckle up. Um, but we don't have church tonight, so it's fine, right? Don't worry, I promise it won't be that bad. I want to start with a little bit of a, an illustration before I jump into this here. Last summer, when uh, Jessica and I moved here from Raleigh, we got very quickly into Jessica's favorite pastime, which is gardening. It's what she loves almost as much as me. Um, she loves gardening. She loves planting things. And one of the things we were really excited to plant were some trees at the top of the Berry Hill property. We planted, what, six trees? I think it was six trees, right? And um, only a couple of them, though, actually mattered and were apple trees. The rest of them are nut trees that no one cares about because I don't eat them. Um, But a couple of them at the very top were apple trees, and I was very excited about those. We worked very hard to get these apple trees in the ground. Just about everything that could go wrong, right, family, Um, went wrong trying to get those trees in the ground. But we got them in there. We were very excited. And then almost immediately, deer got a hold of them. And they ravaged those trees, especially those two beautiful apple trees, um, especially one at, the, one at the very top, snapped the whole top of it off, just looked completely dead. I thought Sandra was going to go shoot a deer right that second. She was ready to. Um, we were very upset. The other trees seemed to be fine, but just those apple trees were gone. And it was really hard, to be honest, to see all that hard work be destroyed like that, Right? And just all that we were doing, all that we were excited about was gone. Now, for the context of our passage today, I want you to take that feeling with those apple trees, with that crop, and magnify that to an apocalyptic level. (laughs) Okay? 
Because what had happened and why Joel received this prophecy in the first place was an incredibly terrible locust plague had ravaged the land and destroyed all of the crops. It had wiped out everything, leaving almost nothing in their wake. And remember, even now, if locusts swarmed our farmlands, it would be devastating. Even with the technology that we have, imagine in their time. It was completely destructive. And this is what had happened. And what Joel does here is Joel receives a word from the Lord that, guess what? These locusts were actually an agent of God's judgments and discipline for the people of Israel. See, well, uh, I say during Joel's time, but during Israel's time, they had a bad problem of choosing to turn away from the Lord and follow after other gods. And God would warn them over and over and tell them, if you turn away from me and follow other gods, there will be discipline. And Because, do hear me on this, not enough churches like to talk about this, but God is our judge. And there is punishment for sin. There wouldn't be a sermon on repentance if that wasn't the case, right? And so Joel is saying, look, there was this plague and they were agents of the Lord to give or to point you to him to say, hey, wake up, Israel. This is a problem. One of the biggest problems that he talks about in chapter one is one of the things the locusts did was they removed the ability of the people to worship God properly in the temple. There were grain and drink offerings the people were supposed to take before the Lord and give to him in worship, and the locusts had destroyed that. So even those who wanted to go and pray to God and say, hey, help us, they couldn't even do it right because the locusts had destroyed that. But then right before our passage today, at the beginning of chapter 2, Joel says, hey, listen, these locusts are just a precursor to another judgment. He said, this is a wake-up call to get our attention today. Because there's coming a day of the Lord. Which will be that final judgment. Where we stand before God, and we finally have to pay up. (laughs) And we finally stand before God and are judged with our lives, with our sins. And Joel's saying, look, God is getting our attention because one day a greater day of judgment's coming. And that book seems really depressing up until that point. But then we get to starting in chapter 12, where God gives us the answer. He says, look, I am the judge, but this is the first main point, really the main point I want us to take away from this, is that God is a kind judge who longs to show mercy to his people. Is God our judge? Yes. But as followers of Jesus, do we need to fear that judgment? No. Should we have a, a fear of God because of our sin? Yes. But we don't, praise God, I don't have to fear that judgment because God is a kind judge who longs to show mercy to his people. And so... The the way we do that, what God says, what we should do to find that mercy that he longs to give us is return to the Lord. It's that word that we don't like to hear enough in churches. It's repent. There are tons of churches out there that have that literally thousands of people come to hear them every Sunday and they love to talk about that second half of that point. God is merciful. He's loving. And if you follow him, your life will be great. 
Everything's going to be happy and sunshine and rainbows because you're a good person at the end of the day and God loves you. Well, church, hear it from me. I know I'm echoing Alex, right? And all the leadership here at the church, repentance comes first. We feel the call of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. And church, if we don't notice the wickedness of our hearts and our sins and return to God in repentance, then the rest doesn't come. That's what we need to do, and that's what I want us to talk about today. Now, Joel is my kind of preacher, okay? He lays this passage out in three neat stanzas that I think break down. Uh, I just love doing sermons in threes. That's just how I was raised. It's it's what I do, right? Um, And so he lays it out for us in three points for what repentance is supposed to look like. So let's look at that today. The first one is this. Repentance requires the whole heart. Repentance requires the whole heart. Look with me again at verses 12 through 14. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? Whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. My goodness, I could do two sermons on just this stanza, but I'm going to do my best to get through it this morning. Now, this passage starts with three incredibly powerful words that I'm not going to talk to until the very end. Trust me, okay? It'll all make sense. We will wrap back around. I'm going to get to those three incredible words, but we're going to get to them at the end. What does God ask us to do here is turn to him with our whole heart. Now, doing things with our heart has a nice ring to it, right? That does kind of fit with a lot of the things and messages the world says, right? That's the Disney mantra, right? Follow your heart. And when we do it that way, that is actually completely wrong because the the Bible does tell us that our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can trust it, (laughs) right? Without Christ, don't follow your heart, right? Because we think of heart as the wrong thing as they thought of it back then. See, nowadays, when we say follow your heart, we mean follow your emotions. And that's what, when the Bible is like, no, 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 our emotions are dumb. <laughs> okay? I get emotional over a really good cheeseburger. <laughs> Don't I, Jessica? She knows. It's a quick way to my heart. It's my comfort food. Right? Um, I, I, anyways, yeah, see, I'm getting emotional right now. I just, I love me a good cheeseburger. If that's what led my decision-making, that would be a bad thing. But in ancient Israel time, that's not what they meant. See, the heart was not the seat of emotions like we consider it now. Ironically, in their time, that was the gut, which I find really funny, right? That was, it was basically like the intestines, and I think that's hilarious, that to them that was the like, seat of emotions. I don't know, whatever. Maybe that's like when we feel like we get butterflies in our stomach. They felt that too, whatever. Anyway. Alex, let's write a commentary on why they did that. That would be the next podcast. Why was, okay, anyways. Go listen to Pastor Alex's podcast. They're really good. <laughs> but for ancient Israel time, the seat of emotion was not the heart. What the heart was, was the seat of um, set moral purpose and resolve. When they talked about doing something with your heart, it had nothing to do with emotion. It meant your moral purpose and resolve. That's what they mean. So when God is telling us, do return to him, repent with your whole heart, God is not saying, hey, if it feels right today, follow me. 
He's saying every single day, choose this. Be resolved in your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength to follow after God. To walk away from your sin. And listen, as parents, we definitely understand this, right? Especially parents of young kids. I guess teenagers too, right? There's a big difference in when a kid looks and says that they're sorry and when they actually mean it, right? I've been a teacher for a long time. One of my favorite instances and examples of this was a little first grader. Actually, I say little. He was the biggest kid in his class. He, was, he needs to be a football player one day. His name was Aiden. This was back in North, in North Carolina. And I was just outside walking to one of my classes, and I see this line of first graders heading outside. They're on the sidewalk. And this kid, Aiden, again, bigger than every kid in his class by a mile. And he turns around, and he sees me. I was the PE teacher back then, so I was the favorite, right? And he sees me, and he's like, Mr. Massey, hey! The thing is, though, he's still turned and, like, running to catch up with his line. And the smallest girl in their class was in line in front of him. And so I'm like, hey, Aiden, wait, look out! And he just barrels this girl to the ground. I mean, knocks her over. She's hit her knees. She's crying. So that her teacher gets her, and I go get Aiden. I'm like, Aiden, buddy, look, I want to say hi. That was really cool. But where are your eyes supposed to be pointed forward? Like, you need to go say sorry. He's like, okay, I'll turn around and say sorry. I'm like, okay, buddy. He turns around, keeps looking at me, and says, sorry, Mr. Massey, and runs and hits the girl over again. Knocks her right back down on the ground. Now, did he do that on purpose? No. But that's a lot of times what we look like in our lives when it comes to repentance, right? We know that we sin, and we look at God, and we say, God, I am sorry. I don't want to do this. I'm really sorry, God. Okay, amen. And then we wake up the next day, and what do we do? We find ourselves doing the exact same thing. We need to be resolved in our decision to follow him. The Bible says, take up your cross every day, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. Whatever those things are that cause us to fall into those sins, we need to set ourselves aside and choose to follow him every single day. And one of the reasons we struggle to do that, that even God understands, is because we do not mourn our sin like we should. True repentance will bring a a contrite heart. Look at what God said here. He says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. This is what we're supposed to look like. We should be heartbroken over our sin, but we aren't. We look at it, we get to the end of the day, and it's like we run through a checklist in our minds. We're like, oh man, I I messed up there. I sinned there. All right, man, I really need to pray tonight. I really need to ask God to forgive me. And then we go to sleep. And it doesn't affect us truly. Church, our sins should break our hearts every single time we think of them. It was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that Jesus got beaten and crucified and died for. Can I just be okay with that? It needs to break us to our core. We should be fasting, mourning, and weeping over what we've done to our Savior. Look, it's Mother's Day, right? There's no worse feeling than knowing you've hurt your mom (laughs) and your dad. But especially if you're any sons in the room, we, we know. We were all mama's boys at one point. Most of us still are, right? We know that feeling. If you've hurt your mom's heart, there's no worse feeling in the world. 
God is our Heavenly Father who did so much for us, who gave up His Son for us. And when we sin, the Bible says we grieve the heart of God. And that should grieve ours. But listen, Joel says through God here that we need to make sure that our mourning, our weeping is true and not just an outward showing, right? Notice what he says here. And rend your hearts and not your garments. It was a cultural norm back in that day. If, if something terrible happened, if you were mourning over something, you would actually, like especially the men, they would go and they would tear their outer garment of their clothes in anger and in mourning. And that was basically a way for other people to see, like, oh man, something horrible has happened in that person's life. Now you can imagine how that could potentially be abused by people to get attention. Right? Like, man, you know what? I'm, I feel in, I'm in a bad mood today, and I need people to know it. I'm just going to go out into the market street and just, oh, woe is me, rip. <laughs> right? Everybody's looking around, oh, he's having a bad day. We need to pray for him. It can be very easy to abuse that. And so God reminds us, look, there's nothing wrong with them doing that for the right reason. But God says, look, I don't care about your clothes. <laughs> I care about your heart. Rend your heart, not your clothes. Look, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you know how much I'm heartbroken over my sin. It matters that God knows. It's my relationship with God. It's my conversation with my Savior saying, Lord, I'm heartbroken over this. I I can't believe I did this to you again. And let's make sure we remember that. When we sin, we're not sinning against ourselves. We're sinning against God. Right? That's what our, our repentance is supposed to look like. And why, though, would we turn to a God like this? This first half is really heavy. Because Joel starts out his book with a very heavy thing. Pointing to those locusts as the judgment of the Lord. Pointing to the coming day of judgment, which would be terrifying without our Savior. Right? But then he reminds us, look, why should you repent In turn to the Lord, why should we weep over our sin? Because, like I said at the beginning, God is gracious. And that's why we are Christians in the first place, right? It's why I'm not Muslim. It's why I don't follow any other religion. Because every other religion says, hey, God is not a fair judge, (laughs) right? God is actually looking and waiting for you to mess up too much. And if you do, sorry, you're still going to hell. Our God is graciously different. He will look at me on judgment day and he won't see me despite my sin. He'll see my Savior, Jesus. And he shows me grace. And I love the phrase that Joel uses here. Look at there in the um, part of verse 13 again. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Speaking of things I didn't know before, I thought this was really cool. There's only one other place in scripture where that list of God's characteristics are put in that exact order, and that is in the book of Jonah. And ironically, it's when Jonah is complaining about those very things. We know the story of Jonah, right? God sends him to the very wicked city of Nineveh. If there was ever a place that needed to repent of their sins, it was Nineveh. They were so wicked that when God told Jonah he needs to go there, he was like, nope. (laughs) He said that to God, and he ran the other way, and God's like, well, I'm not going to send locusts this time, so I'm going to get you swallowed by a giant fish or a whale, right? (laughs) 
Jonah gets out and he says, fine, I will go to Nineveh. And he preaches this very short message. Repent, or God will destroy you. Can you see where Jonah's heart is? It's like the longer part of his message was the destruction part. He says, repent, or God will destroy you. And then he's like, all right, peace, I'm going to go. And he goes up on a hillside, and I, when I was a kid, I always, always used to wonder, why does he go up on a hillside? What is he doing? Why does he find a shady tree to take a nap? It's because he's ready to watch the fireworks show. He's expecting them not to repent. He's like, these guys are so wicked, there's no way they're going to repent. They're, so I'm really excited to see what God does in return. <laughs> right? So I'm going to go get me a shady tree. I'm going to go watch as the fire and brimstone come down. Boom, this is going to be awesome. But then, what happens? <laughs> The people repent. <laughs> they listen to his sermon. Man, we could do a one-sentence sermon. People would love that, right? No? Okay. <laughs> For another time. The people actually repent. This should be a joyous time. But instead, Jonah complains to the Lord. And he says these exact words. He said, God, this is why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you relent over disaster. Jonah, what is wrong with you? <laughs> That's a good thing. In church, that is a blessed thing for us. Amen? Because we can go to God heartbroken and torn up over our sin, but knowing that He longs to forgive us. Ezekiel would later echo this. In Ezekiel 33.11, should also be on the screen, when he said to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? This is the heart of God. He longs to show forgiveness. He longs for us to repent and turn back to Him. He's not a God up there with His finger ready to smite us with lightning because He enjoys it. He's ready to show that forgiveness. And I love those next words that Joel puts. These two words that have a lot of theological implications for us here. He says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Just because, and I want you to hear this with those words, who knows, just because we pray to God doesn't mean he owes us anything. I want to make sure we understand that. Way too often, we act like entitled children with our God. And that's really what the prosperity gospel, really the name it and claim it, like brand of theology, really does. They look at God and they say, if I pray to God to heal me of this sickness, then he will do it. If I ask God to help my finances, then he will do it. If I say to God, and the list goes on, oh, I pity any man who approaches the Most High God as if that God owes him something. Because if we follow this in the correct order, when I pray to God and ask for forgiveness or deliverance, I'm doing it from a heartbroken stance, knowing that I deserve nothing because of my sin. I approach God and say, God, I truly have nothing to offer you, nothing to give you, but I'm asking you anyway. And Joel says, who knows? Maybe God will forgive you. And don't let that who knows be depressing because we've already seen that our God wants to offer forgiveness. 
in salvation. No, sometimes our prayers aren't answered the ways we want. Sometimes they are answered with a no. Sometimes they're answered with a wait. Sometimes they're just answered differently. But we can know that this is a God who loves us and wants to forgive us. So the first point was the longest. <laughs> okay? Repentance takes the whole, or requires the whole heart. The second point is this. Repentance takes the whole body. Look again at verses 15 through 16, and I'll explain. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Repentance does start with the individual. If I'm going to help anybody else, as pastors, this is one of the heaviest parts of our job, our ministry. We have to start with ourselves. Trust me, this was a very hard sermon to prepare. Because for me to get up here and tell you to repent is not just me talking to you. This is me talking to me. It starts with the individual, but it doesn't stop there. It should spread to the entire believing community. Listen, do we want to see revival in this nation? Do we? Do we want to see revival in Pickens County? Do we want to see revival in Easley? Yes, then it must start with churches acting like how Joel describes here. We need to be gathering solemn assemblies where we cry out to God for forgiveness and deliverance for Him. Look, are we upset with the sins we see in our nation? We cry out against things like abortion all the time, and we decry them, and we say that they are wicked. We say that it is murder, and we say it needs to be stopped, and then we stop there. Church, we should be heartbroken over that. Not just our own sins, but the sins of our nation. And it's going to take more than just the pastors to do it. It's going to take the whole church. You know, this is what King Josiah did um, uh, when he became king. This is, I love this story. When he became, ki- became king, the kingdom didn't have copies of God's word. They had gone years without the book of the law. And they were just kind of winging it because Josiah wanted to follow God, but he didn't know how to do it right. And then one day they found a copy of the book of the law. And when he read it, the Bible says that Josiah tore his clothes. There's that practice, right? And he sat in ashes and he wept because he realized that they had been ignorant and had been breaking God's law. And so he gathered every single person in the kingdom, brought them to the temple and said, hey, We've been doing this wrong, and we're going to read this whole thing right now. And he read the entire thing. You think the sermon might be going long today? Imagine if we read the entire Torah, (laughs) the whole first five books of the Old Testament, and then we wept about it. But church, that's what we're supposed to be like. As Christians, we should be heartbroken not over just our own sin, but for the sins of the world. And it's not just for the church leaders. Everyone's expected to join in. Look at the list he gave, right? He says from the elders to the children, I don't care if the babies are still breastfeeding. Bring them. They can try to pray too. They can babble along with the rest of us, right? But then I love the last group he mentions. He says, let the bride and the bridegroom leave their chamber. What he's talking about there is on their honeymoon. And this has even more significance. Another thing I learned. It was actually a a cultural norm back then for newlyweds to have around an entire year where they were freed from having to partake in civil duties. Right? We don't even get paid maternity and paternity leave anymore, right? They had a whole year. (laughs) 
just to, to hang out as a married couple. That sounds awesome, right? But Joel's saying, look, I don't care if you're on your honeymoon night, right? I don't care, like me and Jessica, we went on a cruise. I don't care if you're in the middle of the Caribbean Ocean, turn the boat around, come back home. This is more important. Because truly following God and seeing revival happen by the repentance and the returning to the Lord of the hearts of the nation and of the people, that should be the most important thing on our minds as the church. Amen? Told you the second one was going to be short. So the second point is this, that repentance takes the whole body of the church, which then moves us into the last point, is that repentance also most importantly, seeks God's glory. In a weird way, we've talked a lot about us today so far because there is that crucial aspect of our turning to God. But it's not for us. I don't repent for me. And as the church, we shouldn't even be repenting and asking for forgiveness for our nation and for our world for our sakes. We do it for God's sake. We do it for his glory. Look at how the passage ends in verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say this. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why? Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is the reason we should repent. And notice again here, he says, let the priests gather Don't make that as a write-off to say, oh, well, Jordan and Alex and Joseph got it. No, no, no. In the New Testament, who does Jesus say are the priests? All believers. (laughs) We are a kingdom of priests. It's all of us. We all must gather and repent and return to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. Why? So that the rest of the world doesn't look at us and say, man, look at these Christians. Look at how they're suffering. Look at how they're losing. What kind of God do they serve? This is the kind of prayers that Moses lifted up to God. When his people were struggling, when they would lose battles, he cried out to God and said, God, don't turn from your people so that your enemies look at you and say, wow, what a weak God Israel has. Moses didn't pray so that they could just win more battles. He said, God, give us victory so that you are glorified among the nations. In church, that must be our cry today. I start by feeling that heartbrokenness by weeping and mourning and fasting and coming in solemn assemblies and praying before God because of my sin and our sin and the sins of the world. Why? So that when the rest of the world sees us, they see a God who is loving, who is merciful, and who is victorious. That's the purpose of our prayers. It's the purpose of our repentance. So this is what we're left with. A God who wants us to return to Him in repentance. And look, that sounds great, doesn't it? But I know some people who still feel like that is too much to ask. You don't know me, Pastor. You don't know the sins that I've committed in my life, in my past, that I'm still addicted to to this day. You want to know why I haven't wept over my sins? It's because I know that if I started, I might never stop. Well, here it is that we end with the beginning of the passage. Those three words that started. Yet, even, now. 
You know, I started our sermon today also with a story about those apple trees that had been eaten by the deer, right, that Sandra wanted to kill so badly, <laughs> right? And um, very often I ride my son Daniel on our little side-by-sides around the Berry Hill property just for fun, and I walk their dog, Esco. And I always just kind of check on things, and I always ride by the trees to see how they're doing. And it would always be very sad as I'd ride by those apple trees and see how pitiful and dead they looked. Until earlier last week, I was riding Daniel, and I drive by them, and I almost hit the brake so hard that I threw us off (laughs) side by side, because I looked, and those trees were alive. They were growing. There was green. There was leaves on them. And through a mix of God's providence and some um, gardening wizardry by Sandra and Greg, (laughs) right, those trees were still alive, and they're still going to bear fruit. Church, that's still us today. If you're still breathing, if you're still here, God is saying to you, yet even now, return to me. It's not too late. Now don't miss, Joel did say that one day it will be too late. One day the judgment of the Lord will come. That day of the Lord will come, and Joel said it will be great. He used the words, who can endure the great and terrible day of the Lord? But be encouraged, friend. Someone already did. Our Savior Jesus endured the wrath of God when He died on the cross for your sins and mine. Who can endure the day of the Lord? Jesus can. And if you have never repented of your sins for that first time and started following Jesus, let today be the day. Yet even now, declares the Lord, come to me. You can turn and follow Him. But if you are a believer this morning and you find yourself that you are still falling into sins that are hounding you, and are holding you back from your walk with the Lord, and you haven't been heartbroken and wept over them, and turned to God in in repentance from those, yet even now, you can do that today. We're about to go into a time of invitation. Me and Alex will be down front um, as, as we sing. If you want to come down, if you want to pray with us, if you want to pray where you are, feel free to do that. But if the Spirit's moving among you, get that settled today. Let's pray.